please join us in welcoming to the stage Emily Salliers, musician and activist of the Indigo Girls, Amy Ray, musician and activist of the Indigo Girls, Abby Johnston, editorial director of the 19th, and Cynthia Perez of the Indigenous Women's Network and Honor the Earth. Good morning, welcome. It's an honor to be in conversation with these absolutely legendary artists, activists. Uh, for over 40 years and 15 studio albums, Indio, Ind Indigo Girls have inspired and delighted audiences through their music, but they often and frequently show up outside of the stage in their activism and have shown a real commitment to social justice and environmental justice, centering that work and providing a lesson in how to amplify voices. So much of their life story and work was captured in the excellent documentary, It's Only Life After All, uh, which has several screenings throughout the festival, including one tonight at 5.15. So please go check that out. It's a fantastic documentary, and uh, Emily and Amy will also be there. Um, I'm happy to introduce people who probably don't need much of an introduction. Uh, we have Emily Sailors over here on the end. And then we have Amy Ray sitting right next to me. And in the middle, uh, we are so, so excited to welcome Cynthia Perez, who is on the board of directors of Honor the Earth, which we're going to talk a lot about, a lot about today. She's also a founder of the Indigenous Women's Network. So thank you so much for being here, Cynthia. Um, I have to tell you that I've been thinking a lot about the Indigo Girls a lot over the 24 hours leading up to this conversation, not just because of this conversation that we're about to have, uh, but because of a TikTok that we were talking about last stage, that a, a backstage that approximately 10 people sent to me. Um, have y'all seen the TikTok yet? Let me, for the uninitiated, I'll give you a brief overview here. Uh, it's a video captured on what I think is the world's best party bus. Um, it's a veritable who's who of queer women, uh, all singing together as the bus rolls along. We've got Sarah Paulson and Holland Taylor. We've got Abby Wambach. We have Glennon Doyle. We have the ally Allison Janney, and we have Tignataro. And what are they singing along to but closer to fine? <laughs> I thought that it, it really spoke to so much of what I think your music is about, which is bringing together pe in people in safe spaces and allowing them to have that very uninhibited joy. And that's what we saw in that video. And so um, for the next hour or so, I hope we can bring a little bit of that party bus energy, the lesbian party bus energy into this conversation. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, I'd love to get started with uh, some footage in the documentary. You talk a lot about your activism and how it's evolved over the years, um, and I want to get into that evolution, but I also wanted to start with where um, you all began in activism and how that initially showed up in your work as musicians, and um, we'll get into Honor the Earth as well. Uh, I, I can just say that, well, Amy and I grew up, we met in elementary school, and we grew up in sort of adjacent neighborhoods, and we ended up going to the same high school, the same college. But early on, we, we were reared in families where we were taught that we were in community with other people, that we weren't isolated experiences in life, and that we were members of community. And so that was kind of a paradigm that each of us grew up with in our own homes. And um, so we talked about issues out in the world and how we connected to other people in our communities and sort of laid the groundwork so that when when Amy and I were just like really, really young, like maybe uh, very early 20s um, or even late, late, late teens, whenever we were doing local shows, it was very easy to find a, a group. I can remember we did one for uh, a home that housed women and their kids who didn't have a place to go and there was a huge musician um, community in Atlanta and surrounding neighborhoods. And so we just said, well, this is a part of our community that could use um, some help or to be so that other people can find out about this particular group. 
And then we would just have a concert to raise money for them. And then we had all kinds of musicians like join us for those concerts. So very early on, it was just a way to connect the joy of playing music with what's going on in our community. It started out really simple. And then as the years went on and we met more and more mentors, like we're going to talk about Honor the Earth upcoming. Uh, then we just became more connected to different activist groups. But it all started with the same spirit of we are members of communities. Uh, we want to bridge communities. We're going to play a concert. Let's connect this with some activism. Let's get people from those groups to speak so that we're not just voices for other people, but they bring their own voices. And that sort of uh, became the paradigm from early on and then forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. So activism certainly has a place in music and folk music, which is certainly a genre that y'all have been associated with, uh, has a really rich history of that. Can you talk about some of the people within music and outside of it who kind of modeled activism for you and sort of laid that blueprint? Well, when I was really young, I was like, a, I was listening to like records from like, you know, the hippie era and my sister had the Woodstock album. And so... I was listening to people sing about um, peace and love, and just as a, you know, as a third grader, sort of, and going to church and a lot, and so the activism was modeled sort of through what my siblings were kind of doing and what the church was teaching me about tithing, and but then the musicians that I really, I mean, fast forward, I mean, I guess in our own community in Atlanta, we had a lot of friends that would do shows for, you know, Open Door or like a Meals on Wheels program for people that are housebound. And they were really our mentors. I mean, they were not known people, but they, we were seeing their modeling of, of activism and of raising money for other people um, in the Atlanta community. And then I think, you know, as we started playing, people like Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt, you know, who really walked the talk, um, the Clash, you know, was a really big example to me of people that were singing, you know, about, you know, the power dynamic in the world and kind of, you know, singing for the oppressed and I guess Woody Guthrie, you know, it's it's that kind of cross section. Um, but really the people that Joan Baez that mentored us like on a one-to-one -one basis that we traveled with mm -hmm. and talked to. Um, really, Joan Baez was one of the biggest ones, actually, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. Early on. And Rage Against Machine, they were huge. Yeah, Rage was like, you know, the like kind of intro into like how you sing about things in a way that is so uh, engaging and captures an anger, you know, like The Clash did, you know, and, and, and harnesses that mm -hmm. and teaches people about what's going on. You know, I just was like, Zach really knew how to write about problems in with the Zapatistas, for instance, and, and teach us. So he would, you know, I would read his lyrics and that would open a door to like do more research in something. And so there were a lot of good people along the way. There's, there's a lot of good people out there now, you know? Yeah. Actually, I'm glad that y'all brought up Rage Against the Machine because in the documentary, um, at, at one point you're talking about who is allowed to speak up and kind of have political opinions, right? And I've actually been thinking a lot, a lot about this because on Friday, it marked 20 years since the chicks got kicked off of country radio for saying that they were ashamed that the president was from Texas. Uh, and, you know, in reflection, a lot of that was gendered, right? You know, that was sexist in its overtones and, and a lot of the backlash that they got. And so I'm curious if you've ever felt that in your career, and you'll talk a little bit about that in the documentary, specifically about Rage Against the Machine and what they can say versus what y'all could. I mean, then the film talks about this too, but we, we had a sort of a generalized sense that we were pigeonholed into activist lesbian women with guitars, which was, that was, you know, essentially uh, uh, pariahs, you know, in terms of being respected for our opinions and in terms of influence and, and stuff like that. But I mean, Amy and I, you know, you look back on things and you answer questions about, well, this happened, and and I think that it never stopped us from just speaking what we wanted to speak about. 
Um, obviously, at certain points, because we wanted to be more effective in the activism world, I think that we wished we had a larger sphere of influence and we could bring people on to, um, you know, we, we'd get people to do, try to get people to do Honor the Earth um, concerts, and it was a very small and dedicated following. So whenever I think about, oh, I wish we had more sphere of influence, it all connects to the activism we could have um, been generating. But we just stuck to our to our own voice, and Amy can speak more to this too, but there's a whole section about um, coming out. I was trepidatious about coming out at the beginning, and Amy never was, um, and then I was able to follow her courage and find my own voice, and then we were both out, and then from that point out, you know, we were outspoken political lesbian activists as well as musicians. So, it's well... It's good to live outside the box. It's good to live outside the box. <laughs> uh, and so I can let Amy add to that, but um, you know, Rage Against the Machine, they were hard rock and people loved them and they were men. And you know, when you look at even um, Sinead O'Connor or the chicks, you know, Sinead O'Connor just absolutely had her career derailed. Well, her pop career, I don't think she gave a shit about that really. I watched her, her, docu her documentary. And um, and the same with the chicks. I mean, I think it was like if that had happened at a later time, they wouldn't have been derailed, their career derailed in the way that it was. But it's always women who bear the brunt of, you know, when you speak out as an activist or any kind of radical outside the box women because of the patriarchal forces, the people, the men who are in power. Um, it's it's a difficult road, but when you stick to your own voice and your own path, in the end, none of that matters. But we did experience that. But I think about the the trajectory of kind of like during the civil rights movement, there were a lot of really powerful women that had a lot of gravitas and, and were were respected and listened to in, in the mainstream, you know, of what we know as white people. Uh, you know, I know what went on within the groups is is a different dynamic, but but it's like we came to this time in the music world where all of a sudden it was like there were all these great, you know, male activists, singers and songwriters, and they really could get away with a different type of, of uh, anger. And, and women were just, you know, always smushed down. And, and it's, it, I have a tiny little story. It's interesting because recently I was in Nashville working on this solo country record and going and doing radio things. And there was a station, um, Lightning 100, that has been always really supportive of, of us and of me doing the country thing. And we called them to say, can I, can we come by the studio? And the guy was like, well, you guys, we can't have you because you guys cussed on the Americana Awards broadcast. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, you, you cussed on it and it messed up our broadcast. And I was like, well, first of all, because a guy from the back of my van was like, you didn't cuss, it was Emily. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, okay. So I, I wrote him this email and I was like, first of all, the, the freaking award was for the freedom of speech, number one. <laughs> Okay. Number two, Emily said after the award was over, the speech, she goes, I, fr I fucking love you, Amy Ray. And that is sweet. Yeah. And then I said, and also there is a history of great literary writers that have sailor's mouths, and Emily's one of them. <laughs> and I just, but also I said, you know what? If Sturgill Simpson called you up today, and he said, I want to come by the studio. And he had just done the same thing on the Americana Awards. You would not say, don't come by the studio. It's like, it, it's, it's the same now as it was then, you know? And it's, he, just to make it a sweet story, he totally apologized <laughs> to me and then had me come by the station. And then we did the interview, but then he didn't archive it. <laughs> Which I loved, because I was like, see? <laughs> same old. I think that there should be an FCC carve-out if things are said sweetly but with curse words. So that's what we can take from that. I just get this country with its puritanical views and, like, can't handle a cuss word while people are dying at the border and it's fucked up. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so before starting Honor the Earth, you, you had both been doing climate work engaged in some kind of climate work that Amy, I think you described as low-hanging fruit and middle-class white girl stuff. Um, but meeting Winona LaDuke was a turning point for y'all, it seemed. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about 
what that meeting was and what it kind of did for your activism um, and specifically leading to you, you toward environmental justice work. You want to talk about meeting Winona? Yeah, I was going to get Cynthia in on this conversation too. Amy met Winona at an Earth Day concert at Foxborough Stadium. Was that 91? Somewhere in there. 92, 91? Yeah. Yeah, 91. And, and, and so we had been connected with groups like, uh, you know, uh, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, things like that, that were mostly run by white people. And then when Amy started talking to Winona and uh, started to be mentored on indigenous perspective towards environmentalism, like environmentalism isn't really a thing to indigenous peoples, is it, Cynthia? I mean... The, uh, the Indigenous Women's Network got formed in... Washington, in Yelm, Washington in 1985, after the third uh, conference for Nairobi, Kenya, for the UN had declared the, the decade of women in Mexico in 1976, you know, for equal pay, we're still trying. And uh, the third meeting was in Kenya, so they met at Janet McLeod's uh, backyard. And so Winona brought this woman from New Caledonia, and there were about 250 women from all over uh, different reservations. We had Roberta Blackgoat hitchhike with another woman from the Navajo reservation. She was already in her late 50s and she was uh, uh, talking about Big Mountain and the Peabody and the relocation and the fact that they had also left trailings from the uranium mining that they had done there. So all these women came together with their issues and then they formed the UN, the United, uh, Indigenous Women's Network. And the idea was to work in their own backyards and also uh, do some global work. And so that's where the whole evolution came for uh, Indigenous Women's Network. So we were very fortunate to work with Jenna McLeod, who did the, um, they had a problem with the Indians in their treaty rights uh, fishing for salmon. And so there were the fish wars. And then they also brought up the issues of the Indians being able to practice their own traditions in the, the prison systems. And so out of that evolution, all these women go back into their uh, areas and form different groups to be able to address the issues here. So um, back in 1996, we, we moved the office into Alma de Mujer, because uh, Genevieve Vaughn, who is a philanthropist, uh, donated that land to them. And they would have these meetings where Winona would come in late. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Mililani Trask would have to open the French doors. So she and Marsha would be smoking. And then the, the agenda would be rearranged. But the <laughs> able to address the whole issue of, okay, what are the priorities? What are we doing? And how are we are going to effectively work together in this group of 13 women or, that were on the board of directors at the time. And there were, uh, I have to say, the three days were packed full of excitement. Ingrid Washington was one of the board members at the time, and she's the woman who got killed uh, going to the Uwa Indians in Colombia in 2000 and was murdered, and uh, Hugo Chavez was instrumental in returning their bodies. And so uh, Petroleum Occidental was uh, the company that was responsible for uh, wanting to take over their lands and um, dismiss the indigenous tribe there, the Uwa Indians. And so very much like uh, today in Brazil and mm -hmm. in other areas. So that has always been the forefront because for us, Mother Earth is unique. I'm sure all of you are now saving money to get on the first rocket to go to Mars for clean water rather than to take care of your water here. And so out of that base and that foundation with these leaders, we were able to grow another step with younger women. And so now we're old. So the, I'll contextualize the Alma de Mujer is a land in Austin that the IWN meets at. And we met all the women in the IWN early on after we met Winona. When we had talked to Winona, we said, let's try to do something together. And Winona and, and me and Emily hatched this idea of creating a group that was seeded by Indigenous Women's Network, the Indigenous Environmental Network, and the Seventh Generation Fund. So all of our board members were native. And our first idea was like, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do music. We'll use music to build the bridge and to raise money 
to grant organizations that are doing cultural and environmental work in the indigenous communities led by indigenous leaders. These are not, these are all community based. They're not our ideas. They're people that we are just giving money to that are already doing great things. Because what Winona struck us with was the fact that all these native activists were already doing all this really cool work that was completely being ignored. They were already doing things that set corporate precedent for responsibility, that changed legislation in the government, and no one was talking about them in the press. And we felt like, you know, and our friends do not, did not know about that, you know, in the Southeast. So we, because Indian country is, for us, is, was kind of spread out in other parts of this, of this, of North America for us, and South and Central America. So, we, the idea was like, let's build this bridge and let's get more information to people that don't know what's going on and let's raise money to do grants and let's do cool art at the same time. The IWN was, was seeding, most of the board came from the IWN early on and they, those women leaders mentored Emily and I pretty much for the rest of our careers. Uh, even now, when I'm having issues, I'll come to Austin and make Cynthia go drive around with me in a truck and talk to me about what's going on in, in, in the world of activism. So those women were like crucial and Winona was crucial in the vision of like, this is the lens that you can now see things through. Community-based work, environmentalism and cultural sustainability and it starts at the indigenous level because that's where you have to start if you really wanna make change. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, some some people might be more uh, familiar with Honor the Earth and the work that y'all do, but can y'all just talk a little bit about some of your main focus areas and things that are going on right now that the organization is really focused on? Um, one of the main focuses recently has been fighting the pipelines in the in the Midwest. So, you know, fossil fuels is a dying industry. <clears throat> And you have these big corporations who want to build new pipelines that, first of all, they're not, they're not necessary. And then second of all, there's a threat to the ecosystem of the tribes in the area. And it's just a bad idea for everyone. So um, the water protectors have been up there fighting those pipelines. They've been getting arrested. They're all like, you know, um, having to go to trial and, and all this stuff just to protect the ecosystem that is rightfully theirs to protect. And so that's been a big thrust of all the years work, like environmental justice work. Um, I mean, that's been the main thing for the past year, two years that Honor has worked on. And a lot of agricultural um, projects as well, like uh, trying to develop hemp um, and sort of micro enterprises with different tribes. We, what, our, our kind of idea is that we support good energy projects and we try to fight bad energy projects. So we might be funding solar or wind in, in some communities that are building it themselves or we might be funding a project that brings some kind of like a solar panel factory to a small town where the tribe is, is developing it and training everybody in that. And it runs the gamut, honestly. And we, or we might like support like, you know, give a small grant to the youth that are doing a horseback ride on some anniversary of a great, you know, moment in, in their in their tribal history. So, um, and recently one of our co-ED, Crystal Tubles, went down to Atlanta to work with the uh, defenders of the Atlanta forest, which is working against the uh, police training facility called Cop City by us, um, that's being built in one of the largest forest and hard, old hardwood sort of areas in the middle of at the city of Atlanta. It's an amazing place and they're gonna tear it down and so we're, you know, so Honor went down there to, you know, familiarize themselves and try to support financially and, and with work some of the people that are being arrested and, and some of the protesters and some of the indigenous people that are from the Creek um, community. Mm. Cynthia, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, the leadership of women in particular in, um, in indigenous movements and, you know, the indigenous women's network and talk about what leadership has looked like, um, and and especially when we're talking about um, some of the initiatives that we've been discussing today, the the it's based on matrilineal lines. We come from matrilineal societies, and so uh, there is nobody more f forceful than women between their children, and so the 
the knowledge of planning for the next seven generation is really critical for them. The women from New York, the Seneca, the Tuscadora, the five tribes, they pick their chiefs by watching them grow up so that you can see how a child acts, what his personalities are. The other things are that you have a diverse group of women who work in different areas in the prison with the women with alcohol issues. The fetal issue, when I first, my first conference, I was working in Las Manitas and the barbecue room burned down and I wasn't going, but I was forced to go by my friend, Marcia Gomez. But when I got there, they do a big circle with the entire community, they do a keynote speaker, then from there they break into individual issues. So the issue is you start with the spiritual group, all of us here together in this room. And then from here, different people have different issues. They had battered women, they had prisoners in jail, they had the issues with the alcohol, and uh, those particular issues for different areas are able to cling together and bring together real change or options for their communities. So Winona was more global and uh, they did major work with uh, the gatherings, the indigenous gatherings internationally and they would present for the United Nations. Mililani Trask worked for 18 years and uh, they produced the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights. And there were only five countries that voted against it. The United States was one of them, but they passed it. But enforcing it is another thing. And so these types of transformations really elevate the ability of people to be able to use their voice, find their voice, find their activity that they can uh, present. Art is a very critical, is a universal language. They have always done the beating, the music, the drumming in order to connect. And so this is why I think the indigenous women, the indigo girls are so critical because it gives a greater uh, platform and it allows other people to come forward. For us here in the Southwest, the uh, farm workers used to use used to have the accordion, the conjunto music that always had the ballads, uh, the Nueva Canción in, from Chile during the time of the uh, 1973 coup with Pinochet, which we trained at the School of the Assassins in Bennington, Fort Bennington, and so all these things in it we help uh, participate in. Recently, we did a a um, a gathering for. Um, an art exhibit for the people from Ukraine. And then the people from Italy contacted us to do something for the Africans who were drowning mm. in Italy on their way there. It's still happening and the, now the war is more intense in Ukraine. And so we're all um, connected by thread, by art, by music. It's, uh, they came, one of the women is a stylist and so uh, she's the one that was in charge of the exhibit and we've done exhibits on a regular basis. So we let her struggle through it for a couple of days and then finally we put it up for her. And so she started crying and saying, thank you, I didn't know what to do. But um, I think the issue is that one, one critical point is every decision you make is important. Yeah. And then the other thing is uh, find your voice and find your action. And so that creates your ability to participate at all levels every day mm -hmm. and support one another. And so when we come together as a group, it's not that we don't have differences we have, but we, are, we have the ability to uh, hash it out and be... Uh, <laughs> be women and struggle it out. And so I think that's one of the magic that the Indigo Girls has allowed us to work together with Honor the Earth, the other groups from the different areas to push forth the, the need that we have to take care of our children and our children's children and the people who are coming. Mm -hmm. yeah. well so you're talking about the importance of art and 
I, I really wanted to hear more about how Honor the Earth weaves in music and art into its mission and um, what that has kind of shaped up to be. I know a big part of that was the Honor of the Earth tour, um, but to call that a series of concerts seems like a massive undersell. And so I'm, I'm curious if y'all could talk about like the vision for that and just how that's evolved over the years. Well, when we, the first thing we did with Honor of the Earth was like a series of like three or three or four shows. Yep. And it was just like a trial, like a, like a prototype of what we were gonna do. And it's native artists and us, and then like Bonnie or Jackson or our guests would come. And um, Ulali would play. They were uh, one of the really big bands that would come. Keith Sakola, a really good band called Indigenous that was a blues band, amazing band. Um, and that was in the Midwest. And we were like, you know, at the shows, we would have like an issue in each each area. So it would be like, okay, in, in this area, we're working on, you know, we'd have an action card that everybody's going to sign. We're going to send it into the back, you know, back, this is in the 90s, you, you know, you had action cards and postcards. There wasn't, like, all, all the email stuff. And we're going to send it in on this issue around, you know, nuclear waste um, um, in Minnesota or, you know, nuclear power plant in Minnesota. Or we're going to do it on a paper mill somewhere, you know, like what that's affecting an indigenous community. Like we would look at, they would tell us what issue they wanted us to focus on. We would collect action cards, we would have a speaker from that issue, and we would do the cultural exchange and every show had that kind of aspect. And then we would have a press conference at the beginning of the show featuring the native folks, leaders, the elders in those communities. And that became the template. And you know, we were bigger than we were, we had a farther reach, Indigo Girls did, and a larger audience. So we could, we could envision this, a, a tour where we would go out for four weeks or three weeks and we would go all over like, we would go up and down the West Coast or do the Northwest and go to Alaska and then go to the Southwest. And in every single stop, there would be an issue. And we would typically play in a border town and then on in the, in the Indian community. And we would do both things. And the native artists would do both things as well. And so it creates a lot of community and we would go and we would, you know, like we would go, go through Hopi and look at a solar project that was being built or we would go up to uh, where the Exxon Valdez spill was and we would ride on a boat and look at that um, and play a little concert in Cordova. Um, or we would go down to the Florida traditional Seminole area where there were living in Chickies, these little houses that were traditional and they were being banned because of housing codes back then. Um, so it was like this idea that you travel and then you take, you know, every stop has the press conference, the local groups, the local issue, you raise money, you grant those groups that money and you spread the word. And that's, and it was like a bus of, of native activists and whoever was playing. Jackson Brown rode around with us for a long time and we uh, tortured him <laughs> by fangirling him all the time. <laughs> and uh, made him, we made him stop in Winslow at his own statue and take a picture of his, <laughs> of his statue in Winslow, Arizona <laughs> with us. <laughs> wow, we had some guts. But um, yeah, so that was the template. As, as we've, I mean, Winona used to always say, we wanna be the people that everybody wants to hang out with. Right. We want to have art. We want to have music. We want to have fun. We don't want this to be a droll, you know, super serious conversation just about the issues. We want to talk about the good things that are happening. Language recovery, you know, kids in schools that are learning their own languages, you know, really cool things. Um, sobriety projects. Uh, it's, it runs the gamut. So the idea was to find a way to communicate that was exciting and engaging, and, and she really could do that. And then sometimes we would go to Washington DC and bring a bunch of activists with us and get their attention by having Bonnie Raitt play a song. They would all come and then the microphone would go from the white person to the Indian activist, you know, and, and that's how you do it. It's like a bait and switch because people are, you know, they, you know how it is, short attention spans. So this is all the maps, but now, you know, we don't, we can't, we don't have the same audience. So we have to do, so we do smaller shows with the same template often and smaller events, but other artists now have taken on and will do like Justin Vernon did a Big Water's Life show and, or we'll get money from, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers or something, you know, or Stone Gossard will be doing something. It's, it's, um, it's has spread. And so other musicians get involved and that's the point. That's what we're trying to do is 
bring a lot of other people into the circle because we can't, you know, we're, we need more, more artists that, and we need artists that are big, you know, to really, Sarah McLaughlin's helped a lot. Um, Brandy Carlisle's given a lot of money. It's just, there's a million, there's a lot of people that did, did just randomly send money in and they'll be like, oh, we got a check from so-and-so. It's like, it's cool, you know? Yeah. yeah, but that was the template. And then we did four, maybe four tours like that or five big ones the big ones that we did and then we started doing more regional like we would do three shows in the southwest to fight a coal-fired power plant or something like that yeah yeah i did want to note that if you have questions you can start submitting them we're going to leave some time at the end on the south by southwest go app so we'll not be doing anything in the aisles with the mics but if you do have questions you can submit them i see a couple of them coming in and we'll get to those at the end of the conversation um so one of the things that y'all have talked about a lot today and then talk a lot in, about in the documentary is something that you refer to as community-based activism, um, but a lot of those tenets are also um, what we would call intersectional work today, right? That's become like a very big word. That's something that's familiar in activist spaces and then in, in the broader culture in general. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, for Amy and Emily as white people working in these spaces, like what what was that journey like and do you feel like we're all catching up to this now? Um, and why did it take so long to do it? Because y'all were first mentioning this in the 90s. Well, as white people, we were very, uh, we came in very humbled, very ignorant, uh, very willing to learn and listen. And I think as white people, you go into someone else's community, you're not going in there as a white person to affect change in a community, an indigenous community, a community that's largely people of color who've had different, completely different experiences that haven't had the privilege of living under the white, you know, the white privilege system. So we went in just wide-eyed, we learned a lot. Um, and I think one of the main things we learned is that uh, activism has to come from community. So Cynthia talked about the circle and we're women and we're gonna hash it out. Um, and it's very important not to come from the outside and speak for the inside. And we also learned that in grassroots activism, you know, the money that you raise, and it's not just about money because it's about uh, bringing political voice or amplifying voices that may not be heard as loudly in the mainstream or in the political arena. So it's, uh, it's really about all the money being used, not for overhead for some organization, but you know, very carefully going to its needs where it's needed the most um, for whatever the issue or cause may be. But I think that, you know, we, we live in the South and there, we're all trying to learn how to be anti-racists to the best of our ability. And there's a huge learning curve and we stumble over our own racism. And I was thinking too that the connection to indigenous activism as white people, you know, I recently watched old Disney movies and was shocked at the way that indigenous characters were portrayed. This is stuff that I grew up as a white kid watching and never really knew uh, what the picture that was painted for a lot of white people about indigenous pe peoples and cultures that made us all think like, oh, well, Indians, they're over there you know, instead of learning from the connections that indigenous wisdom teaches us. So the grassroots activism, what we learned, we went in respectfully, humbly, listening, and we were really, Amy and I see ourselves really as like liaisons or bridge builders between Indian and non-Indian communities, between communities of color and, and white communities. But there's just, I think that everybody in order to, and there's a youth movement, you know, with anti-gun violence and intersectionality that's very, very inspiring, that we need to look to women and we need to look to youth, and it all has to come from community, and we have to go in as learning from each other, and the anti-racism things that we learn from authors and activisms, it's not up to people of color or Indians to teach us how to be anti-racists, it's up to us. And I just don't know why everybody or more people, more white people, well, there are reasons why psychologically, um, but that we don't want to get all more in on learning how to be anti-racist and learning how to work 
within communities as liaisons or bridge builders and not as spokespeople. So that's been the main thrust. And the, you asked about the intersectionality. I think, you know, we really started seeing that early on in, within communities as you'd build allies out from, with other groups, you know. So if you're working on a project, you might have uh, other communities of color working as well. And they bring their own set of issues and you listen to what they're talking about. And you realize, oh, we're, we're kind of fighting the same people and we're fighting the same paradigm for the rest of our lives, it feels like. You know, it's like every time an issue crops up, it's like, oh, of course that's happening. And you start making the connections. And I think for me, in the South especially, what I saw was a lot of really incredible queer activists start taking on the migrant farmers' work, you know, and really being supportive of that in North Carolina especially. And I saw that and I was like, yeah, that's, that's it was Southerners on New Ground that first I saw doing this. And I was like, that's, that's a good, that's the model. That's the model is that you, we're all fighting the same energy paradigm. So we all need to get together and do that. And, and the Zapatistas really showed that. We went down, our Honor the Earth was funding the Zapatistas, um, some of the women down there in Chiapas, Mexico. And we went down a few times. And I remember just being struck by this message of like, come to this gathering, learn and empower yourself, and then go back into your own community and make change. And your issues are going to be different from my issues but we're fighting the same power structure. And that's what we, we just kept learning that over and over again. And now when you talk to you know, kids in their teens and 20s, they, that is a word that, fall, that rolls off their tongue all the time. And it's so great because you're like, this is, you know, you'll, and, and when I went down to the Atlanta forest the other day to meet some of the people camping down there and defending that, I was struck by the incredible amount of, of queer people and BIPOC, mm -hmm. all doing the work for all of us. And I'm, that's like moving to me is that you have a queer community that's already fighting against anti-trans and anti-queer laws everywhere in, in this country and their work to defending the environment. They see, they see the connection. And that is, that, that's, if, if there's anything that could have been achieved by all of this work, that's one of the main, most important things, because then you bring everybody into the circle. I just want to add one thing here. See, I sat on a lot of boards. This is why this humility is really respect. And that's what you want to bring. You want to bring your respect and learn. And so it's been an honor for me to sit on this board with uh, the Indigo Girls. Thank you. We love you. Thanks, Cynthia. We love you, Cynthia. I want to talk about kind of this new generation. I feel like they've come up a couple of different times, like both in music, outside of music, um, and what their activism looks like. And I'm just curious for, for all three of you what you're seeing and, and kind of what your hopes are in terms of how young people are moving through the world and, um, you know, what, what looks different for them. Well, I think of the Parkland shooting. First, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and the young activists that have really become at the forefront of the way that we think about gun violence, sensible gun laws. Um, and those were high school kids who were forced into the horror of gun violence, and which is the number one public health crisis in this country, um, guns. And then I think about um, young musicians. I was just listening to this musician named Miss Grit. Have you all heard her? Like, she's just this, like, sort of, you know, non-binary, um, a young artist who can speak about anything she wants, and a young artist like Lil Nas X, who had a country radio hit, and then comes out in all his regalia, you know, on an award show or whatever. Um, there are many non-binary or queer artists in country music who are young, who are coming up, so, and I also think about like in my own house, my, I have a 10 year old daughter. If I forget to use a they pronoun for one of her friends, she corrects me immediately. These are things for young people that are becoming, it's just the nature of their 
awareness and reality. You know, there aren't the divisions between binary and non-binary for some of these kids. And so it's youth, youth artists, youth activists that give me the most hope um, for the future because you see real change in them even compared to like when I was, well, I would say compared to, that was a long time ago <laughs> when I was growing up. But it's very, very inspiring. And you see young, like the congressman from Florida, that young guy. Nice. Yeah, and then AOC, who's, you know, a hero. And um, all the younger politicians who are getting elected now, people of color, people from different communities, all that sort of thing, diversity and, um, and anti-racism learning and youth activism is, and music, arts, culture is what gives me hope for the future. It's the most powerful force. Yeah, I was struck also by these musicians that I know that are just getting out of their teens and they were talking about the shows that they were doing coming up and they're doing, they were doing a series of like garage shows, you know, like house concerts or whatever. And that's exactly what the punk rockers did when I was growing up. And, but it was fascinating to me because everybody says, oh, these young, you know, the other older musicians will be like, they don't understand. You got to like play live music and it can't all be like YouTube and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, they actually do because they're actually having these shows and they're having gatherings and you don't know that because you're not paying attention. But, you know, it's like we have to pay attention as older people to what's actually going on and not just cast dispersions as like old fogies, you know? But it's it was really inspiring. My niece was just like showing me the whole tour that she's doing and it was like all like these cool like, you know, garage shows and she's like, oh, that's where garage garage rock came from. And I was like, yeah, that's that's the whole thing. She's like, I had no idea. So they think of that model without even knowing how it's connected, which is what I love, you know? It's like, it's always new to somebody, which is cool. I think like too, in general, like white culture in this country, we're like the the cavity of power because we we don't take into account the wisdom of our elders the way that some other communities do and we don't take in uh the wisdom of youth and the energy of youth and their their vision for the future and uh we're just it's we're bereft of wisdom knowledge and activism but i see it becoming more and more filling in the gap of the rest of us who think that all the power hands and the lies in the hands of the those who aren't uh, older or those who aren't younger. Yeah, because that's the, one of the things we learned, wasn't it, on those buses? Definitely. Like elders, kids, you know, people that were middle but everybody, it's inter, the, I mean, Cynthia can speak to that, but it's the intergenerational nature of activism in the indigenous communities that has just for us was so energizing. And then, and then you can see that that, has, that is starting to carry through because there are issues that young people are spearheading and the older people really still care about. And it's making, getting them together. And, and you as an older person have to not be scared to enter those spaces as well, you know, and not be, oh, I'm just old, they don't care. You know, it's like enter those spaces, engage, you know, and, and listen to what the younger folks are telling you because we have to have two-way mentoring all the time. You know, that old guy, Bob Dylan, even said it. Don't criticize what you can't understand. Oh, yeah. You don't understand. Bob. <laughs> yep. Cynthia, I'd love to hear a little bit from you on, on kind of the what we were just talking about, that intergenerational wisdom and that kind of knowledge sharing. Uh, because, you know, you're right. It, it's not even that we, um, you know, often lose the wisdom of people who are older than us, but we don't take kids seriously either until they're, beating down the doors of Congress and saying, we're scared to go to school. Um, but I'd love to hear about your perspective on that. I think it's critical that people remember the woman who ran from the onion fields, got handcuffed in Uvalde. And then when she was released by her friends, she ran in, got her kids and got out. While the other people stood there with guns cocked 77 minutes. And I think that it is impressive. We, have, we do a project out there for trauma, tackles and trauma and tile with Wanda Montemayor. And so then uh, the issue is to go to the kid's house and get to meet the family and work with the kids slowly that don't want to return to school. But I think that uh, one of the things that is so helpful to each and every one of you is to recognize 
how precious life is and how useful and how, every, how most people, not everybody, but most people go uh, gaga when the baby is born. And people run when people are dying because they can't face that death. But the most sacred moment is when you come in and when you leave. But it's the story of the journey. And the story of the journey in order to help with uh, activism and burnout, et cetera, et cetera, is to find an elder that can say, oh, yeah, I remember that. We were doing this and on and This is how we coped. Because you need that power of ceremony. And so it, the sun shines for everybody. Okay? The sun shines for everybody. The reflection of the sunlight is for the moon and the feminine energy. And for you to be able to be, let's say, trounced by somebody and just go step out in the sunlight and say, okay, wash it off of me. And to be able to uh, take a moment to step back, analyze, and see what you can do. And so all of that comes with, with years of experience because our initial reaction is always to react. And so I think that is very important for us to understand that sometimes the Indians say, it is enough to be walking across the street and smile at that person because nobody knows what's going on in people's minds. And it could be the encouragement of just doing something for that person. Because the reason that we're all here is because we're, an elder told us is we're all traumatized. We've all, however we, we try to deceive ourselves and say, this did not affect me, that did not affect me. We're all the subjects of that trauma that we have placed on, on here. And so in that process, if we can remember that, and you can call your higher spirit, whatever it is, we call it spirit. We don't call it religion because we don't have to pay for it. But, <laughs> but the issue is that, uh, you know, um, that, that is what we're here for. We have, and I think one of the painful issues is we're here for a finite time. Our lives are not that long when you really look at it. Our troubles sometimes seem humongous, but as you wake up the next morning, it's, not, it's manageable. And you try to find other people who can help you navigate. And so that is the role of the elders. That's the role of being able to calm yourself, step back, analyze, accept what your, your issue was and accept what the other person is, and so try to work together. I have something that I tell people I'm going to tell you. When people are going through their issue, they have the ability to, to release their anger on you. It's a good thing to stand like a warrior and grow a tail because Mother Earth is the only one that can take shit and grow flowers out of it. So you make sure not to hold any of that and to, to allow it to pass and allow that person to have their moment, but not to ingest it. Because if you keep it, it could harm you. And so that's why it's so critical, John McLeod would say, to raise the child with praise. Because once you, you, you take out that anger on that person, it stays in there and it cuts them up. And it's very hard to withdraw those thoughts. So there is the good word, which is circular. There is the words of anger, which is like a saw blade. And then there is the words of truth that is half soft and half jagged. And so if you can remember that, you can give yourself a little bit of time and re recall that so that you can respect the other person and hope that they get through the other side. Love that.
I need somebody to just hopefully have been live tweeting all of these nuggets that Cynthia is dropping for us today uh, so I can go process them later. Oh, amazing. I'm going to get to uh, as many questions as I can from the audience. I think that we tackled a couple of them with that last one, which is the advice for newer generations just by hearing this incredible perspective that you all have. But I think one that I want to get to is... Um, from Jamie Harris. So with activism moving online and on social media, what do you feel about corporations and government's access to social data and do we need more data protection for activists? Wow. I don't know. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously, it's, I wish I knew more about the technicalities of the power that, that corporations have. Um, over social media, there's such a environment of mistrust. Now there's fake images and fakeness and more than one truth. And it's very, very hard to navigate. And, you know, I, I'd be interested in talking to younger people about this who are more savvy about technology and, and social media. What is their approach to this and the safety of what can be shared? And because as far as I can tell, you know, with hacking and everything else, Nothing is really safe, and I think that you just have to be as protective as you can, but you have to go forth with your message and the way that you use social media for good and, um, and join forces with other groups who are using social media for good uh, because there's always going to be the evil force. I'll just call it that, like Star Wars or something that <laughs> is, is, is out there. Um, but I would be really interested in talking to more youth about that to gain my own further understanding. Sorry, that's not a very articulate or clear answer, but that's my perception. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess, like, for us, we, you know, with kids, too, it's like, I feel like one of the most important things is the research on, from, from our end as activists, on how, what's happening, and how to get, how to get more transparency. And that's, a, that's another whole front line of, like, activism, you know, is tech. And how do we... How do we protect each other that are doing work that's life-threatening, you know? And I think we also need to talk to people in other countries that actually, you know, in Iran and, you know, Hong Kong, people that are really dealing with it. And how do you, how, how do you do your message, do your marches, do your online community gathering and protect yourself, you know? And a lot of that to me is still like unknown because we do not get the information we're supposed to have about all that. And we also can't count on the government to do it. So it's kind of like, here's what you need to fund. We need to fund researchers that are doing this work so that we have a safe space still. Yeah. I, I think, think the other thing is that uh, it, you don't have to feel oppressed. You have to know that uh, even though President Biden said he wasn't bailing out the Signature Bank or the Silicon Valley, that that whole federal government is sustained by your by your efforts, by your tax dollars, and you're historically supporting and sustaining these corporations. The uh, abatements that are given to the um, Tesla to come and move over here when he said that he wasn't happy with Silicon, what could you give me? But he had already bought part of the land in Del Valley and Del Valley asked for an HEB and they didn't get it because everybody was very busy filling their pockets. And so things like that, if you've just become aware, it's difficult because there's so much news now simultaneously, but rather to try to trace it in order to be able to connect the dots, it gives you a little bit more wisdom because if you're old enough you've seen the game play over again so the indians say it's the same war it's a different day it's really interesting with this cop city in atlanta too if you look at the board members who are behind the police group that or the group that is that wants to build this facility they're like accountants and bankers and corporate members and you know what the hell that those are things that you're talking about tracing, like trace it back, Who, who's the power behind what's happening. Um, so it's, you just have to keep your eyes open. And I think to not be overwhelmed by all the information that comes in at us. I think probably most of us, if not all of us, feel overwhelmed by 
just everything that's coming at us as we try to be conscientious, conscientious and find our voice and our role in the issues. All right, I'm gonna end us on maybe a somewhat big question in under a minute left, but uh, this is from Susan. She wants to know, there's a saying, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. What would you most like to grow? Hope, and don't be overwhelmed by all the news that's coming. And the thing is to realize that it's an ordinary person that perseveres and is tenacious. And that's why you're so dangerous. <laughs> I would like to grow bigger listening ears and empathy. Yeah, I just, I want to grow a people that that are, that are growing now, that are already growing. I just want to encourage this, the young folks we know that are doing such amazing work out there. And all of that has to do with hope because they could be, they, I could see why you would just give up, you know, but they don't. Well, may we plant a garden with all of those things. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Amy, Abby. Cynthia, Emily. It's wonderful being here with you.